You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader discusses the scientific basis of what it means to rewire the brain for enlightenment. We actually spontaneously, without effort and without trying, modify the functioning of our physiology by putting it back in tune with its own original design, even if there are influences that come from heredity, from stress, or from straining. This episode is hosted by renowned physiologist, researcher, and author, Dr. Robert Keith Wallace. Hi, everyone. I'm Robert Keith Wallace, professor and chair of the Physiology and Health Department at Marshy International University. And I have the enormous honor and pleasure of introducing our speaker today, Dr. Tony Nader, MD, PhD, who is an extraordinary individual. He's trained at Harvard and MIT but he's far more than that. He certainly worked with some of the greatest neurophysiologists, and he's just brilliant in terms of his knowledge of life. He basically runs the entire TM, Transcendental Meditation Organization, and he is just a man of great knowledge and integrity. So I'm going to introduce him right now. We're very excited about his new book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, And I just want to ask him if he could start right away with telling us about this new book, which I think is fantastic. We're all going to love it. Dr. Nader. Dr. Wallace, Professor Wallace, what a joy to have you. We have worked with Dr. Wallace a lot together in so many different projects. And actually, in the very first chapter of the book, I mentioned Dr. Wallace because he was the one who looked into a fourth state of consciousness and looked into consciousness and what is consciousness with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who brought this knowledge to to us. And the book is really bringing together all that I have searched for to understand in terms of life's big questions. And I have searched through these in science, in medicine, in research, in philosophy, in theology, and in the ancient wisdom of all traditions, particularly as I was trained and taught and guided by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who brought the Transcendental Meditation program to the world, and particularly to the West, from these ancient traditions, and looked at all these views. All my search was to answer questions about What is the purpose of everything we do? What's the purpose of life? Where do we come from? Where do we go? Why do we make such strong opinions about things and even fight against others who have different opinions? What makes us so unique as individuals, yet so common as a human being, so the same, yet so different at the same time? Do we have freedom? Do we have the ability to choose, to make decisions, to change things in our life? What is it all about in terms of reality? What is reality truly if we dream and we have a different reality during our dream? 
we are awake and if we are dull and our perception is not right, we might even interpret things, see things from different perspectives, from different points of view, depending on how we were brought up, what prejudice we have, and how can we create peace among nations? And is there just one absolute truth and reality, but everybody is having a different perception or is it that there are different truths in life, different relations, different situations, depending on different cultures, different conditions, and how this influences our life? How does it help us understand the game of life, if it's a game, or you know the, the situation of life? Why should we suffer? Why should there be pain? Why should there be luck and bad luck and good luck and all of these things that happen to us we don't know from where can we have an influence on them so these are big questions that i'm sure every one of us asks at one point or another in their lives and we search for answers so like everybody else i have been searching and looking and i have come to very convincing conclusions for myself and understanding that really gives me peace in my search. And I felt I have to share this with everybody. I have to tell everybody what my experience was, what my experience has been, and bring it out not only as an experience, but also as a comparative thesis, if you like, or thought and understanding and solutions to these problems. They were very difficult problems asked throughout times, throughout the ages, in terms of philosophy, belief, science, trying to understand the secret of things. And I really feel, and I have to say it with all modesty and in a humble way, that through all these great teachers that I have been through, and particularly Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Vedic tradition, I have come up with an answer to those very profound and deep questions that is very satisfying to myself. And I want to make sure that everybody can share this. So those who are seekers and looking for answers, at least they have the opportunity to be aware of others' experiences, others' conclusions, and that my life search is not lost, but is part of at least the history of knowledge and understanding and discussion. And I think really it's, for me, very important to share. And so the book is a book of sharing and thinking and understanding that hopefully will bring to light a lot of knowledge from science, technology, of the physical reality and how it relates to our mental life, our consciousness, our expectations, our disappointments, as well as our joys our worries about certain things, our questions about things we don't understand. Why should there be evil? Who created all of that? Why would anyone create evil in the world and allow it to happen and allow suffering to go on? Very basic questions, but very, very deeply practical in day-to-day -day life and in bringing understanding and greater awareness to who we are, where we come from, and what are the rules of this game that we have been put in and that we are playing sometimes knowing some of the laws and some of the rules and sometimes ignoring and just going about not knowing what is going on.
I love everything you're saying. I know how deep you are. You're such a profound individual. You carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. So many things you do are so important to the world. I'm gonna start with the most obvious question and that is, is this the time to consider enlightenment during COVID? I mean, it is almost the absolute contrast of chaos, confusion, fear, and then we're presenting enlightenment and you particularly are really presenting a very practical guide to how to gain enlightenment. Yes, indeed. It's a big question, very important. And, you know, Marisi used to give this expression and this comment a lot. When you are in a room and there is darkness, there are things that might be there in the room that you don't see. And there are others that might be there in the big room or it's completely pitch dark. And then walking around, you tumble, you fall, you hit others by mistake. You are overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. You have limited ability to find solutions, to find answers, because it's very hard to see. It takes time. You will find things, but it will take more time. It's kind of trying to walk in darkness and to find the way, but the way changes and sometimes takes you this way and that way and others move in it and all of that. And that creates lots of chaos and lots of problems and lots of issues. And it is during that time that is most important to bring the light. Just think of the room, bring the light to the room at least people will not bump into each other, will not be saying it's the other's fault that I fell or it's my fault, but I didn't see it. So how can I be judged? How can I be punished? How can I be responsible? I couldn't see and it's part of living and that's what it is. And others are doing the same and we can't find the solutions. And maybe the solutions are sitting there in a table, on a table or somewhere it's written, but you can't read it, you can't see it, you can't understand it because you can't fathom it, it's not available to you, it's all very dark. And then you bring the light to that room and you put light in the room and now things start to solve themselves in a natural way. You start finding your way, you start finding the solutions, you start understanding what is happening, and then it leads you to a life that is better and a life among the community of those who are in that room that is better. Now take this to the dimension of our world. Of course, we have light, we have electricity on the surface level, but we see all of this our perception, our senses, our hearing, our vision, they bring to us information which get processed through our nervous system. And ultimately, based on the quality of our awareness, they are experienced as something or the other, either as real, something that helps to grow and benefit from the situation, or something that confuses us if we are ourselves confused. So consciousness on different levels is the most fundamental aspect of our life. Because when we understand something, we understand it through our consciousness. When we experience something, love, 
happiness, these are experiences in consciousness. If you are not conscious, then what does it help you to have all the wealth in the world, even all the love in the world, even all the happiness that can be outside and the circumstances? If you're in anesthesia or you are in coma, you do not experience anything. If you are in deep sleep, fine, you are recuperating. So you have a certain level of understanding and consciousness, but it's a recuperating time. When you are in dream, you are living in an illusionary reality, which you know, might give you a heart attack or might give you feelings of elation and happiness and bliss. But then you wake up and you find it's a different reality. One should remember that even during the waking state, we can be dull, we can be alert, we can be very alert, we can have awareness that is broad, we can have stability and strength within ourselves, or we can be a football of situations and circumstances tossed around by what happens in the outside world. What does it take to have the best possibility? What it takes is light, the light of awareness, to be aware on a broader perspective. It is known that when one is under stress, that consciousness narrows, there is focus on that particular event that has to be attended and that has been taken care of. And therefore, the broadness of understanding, the ability to see different options, get more and more narrow. So in a way, you're turning the light on a concentrated way, on a very specific value, and you lose the option on the ability to see other values from a broader comprehension. So enlightenment seems like a huge word, you know, is something that has been sort of as very difficult to attain. And all that it means is broadening your awareness and broadening your awareness means to bring light. So to see things with the light of consciousness so that when you look at reality, you see it from its truest, most complete level of what it is. And the most important aspect of knowledge and enlightenment is to know oneself, to experience first oneself. Why? Because within oneself is the infinite reservoir of creativity and intelligence that manages our life and manages the life actually of the universe. So in the book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, I go through all of these aspects that discuss the value of exposing ourselves to pure consciousness, which is pure being, which is in some explanation is called the unified field, as physics has discovered that there is a unified field in nature, which means when you go from the gross values of objects to their constituent values, you go to the molecules, you go to the atoms, and then as you go deeper to particles, and then you find there are fields of energy. And then ultimately physics today postulates a unified field of all the laws of nature from which everything comes. So what we are saying is, that this field is a field of consciousness. And then it appears as matter. And this field, we have direct access to it through our awareness. We have direct access to it through our consciousness, which is our own self 
because we are the self of everything. Our inner self is also the self of the atoms, is the self of the stars, is the self of the tree, is the self of the animals, the self of everyone else also, even on taking it from the unified field of physics reality, which says it's the unified field that appears as these different values. So we as human being, we have a human system, a human machinery that is able to experience that self, that is experiencing it directly through transcending. That is where transcendental meditation comes because it allows us to go beyond the surface values, beyond the limited narrow values to that value which is infinite, which is unbounded, which is our true inner self. So know thyself is really know that you are everything, that you are wholeness, that you are ultimately within yourself, totality and fullness. And experiencing that gives you deep clarity, deep stability, because you are anchored in the bottom of the ocean. If the mind is like an ocean and active on its surface and more and more quiet as you go deeper, it is the depths of the ocean. It's the entire ocean. So now you see things from the perspective of the entire ocean of life, which is the ocean of consciousness. And from that perspective, you can say you are enlightened because you have a light. You see not in darkness, not narrow vision, but you see the entire perspective. So during that time where we have difficulties and difficulties leads to more difficulties, and we feel we should be outward, maybe trying to solve things on the outward side. What we really need is to go within, experience the light of life within ourselves, pure being, pure consciousness. And what is good about it, it's that it's not something that is for a recluse to leave life and go away. To the contrary, it's for everyone, for recluse at the same time as for people who are into dynamic activity, dynamic productivity and activity on the outside, then they have that ability to act from a platform which is stable, which is strong, which is settled, which is unshaken by situations and circumstances, and at the same time is a situation that is helping to change the world, to do things that are right in the same way as if you are in a lit room, you can find the solutions much more easily than if you are in a dark room where you don't know where you're going. So enlightenment is a necessity for everyone to be able to live life in its fullness. And it's a solution, not some extra something that we can think about later on when we have solved the problems. It is actually the prerequisite to truly solve the problems in their depths, in their fullness, rather than fragmented solutions on the surface level. I know you appreciate very much Maharishi's great genius in bringing out that enlightenment is something available for everyone and that he was able to explain enlightenment scientifically. And you being the phenomenal scientist you are, medical doctor, neurophysiologist, you perhaps more than any other individual appreciate the science of enlightenment. 
what it means to rewire the brain, not only on the kind of wiring, but on the molecular level too. So please tell us, you've, you've given the practical application of how enlightenment is for everyone. Could you give us a little more about the scientific basis of what it means to rewire the brain for enlightenment? In the 1970s, a great scientist doing his PhD at UCLA <laughs> and who wrote articles in the most advanced journals of science discovered that there is a fourth state of consciousness. And that scientist is Dr. Keith Wallace. And he set science on a path of understanding consciousness. Consciousness, we think sometimes as being the byproduct of the nervous system. The reality is that consciousness is all there is. And that is a very basic part of the thesis or the description that is presented in the book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. And therefore from consciousness, from awareness, and from the experience of the inner self, we actually spontaneously, without effort, without trying, can modify the functioning of our physiology by putting it back in tune with its own original profound design, even if there are things that are there that come from heredity, from stress, from strain, from whatever cause that has damage the perfect balance of the possibility of our physiology to experience happiness, to experience bliss, to experience fullness of life from consciousness. And that has been shown through the practice of transcendental meditation, which is just a simple mental technique that you practice easily sitting in a chair for a few minutes, morning and evening. It has been shown that the whole physiology is transformed. You know, when you sleep well in the night, you wake up, you feel better, you have rested mentally and physically, and that's what allows you to deal with problems and situations and circumstances with a clearer mind, with a greater ability to do things in a perfect way. So that is spontaneous. You cannot force it. You just take rest and then the rest happens. Transcendental meditation, as Dr. Kiswalas has shown, gives a new state of consciousness, which is a deep restful state, yet very highly aware, very highly alert. So he called it restful awareness or hypometabolic aware state, which is a unique state that has been shown scientifically to remove the tensions, the stresses, the strains, reorganize the physiology, and allows the human nervous system to open up its reserves as shown and seen by greater coherence in brainwave functioning. And for this, we can say, imagine your brain is like a set of millions of processors, individual processors, like you have a computer and the computer is not just one advanced processor that's just been discovered, but many thousands or millions even of processors that are processing information. Now, if these processors work separately one from the other, and everyone is on its own path, they might lead anywhere because there is confusion and there is not coordination or it takes time to analyze things. But if there is a way that they are coordinated and they work together, then your ability to face any situation or to solve any problem 
And the ability to see the situation from its widest perspective is really enhanced and is completely giving you the ability to make right decisions, as well as to control the functioning of the physiology in a spontaneous way. It's not like you have to become concentrating on changing things this way and that. What has been shown is spontaneously there is greater coherence between right and left, front and back on a very high level. That means that the reserves of the brain are opening up and that the whole processors are working together under any circumstance to solve specific problems and yet keep broad comprehension and broad awareness and ability to make decisions that are in tune with the environment. So this is what happens in the nervous system. But all of this leads to a better physiology. There is a decrease in blood pressure. There is improvement in biological markers of indicating a decrease of stress and strain, greater happiness, better behavior, hormonal changes, neurophysiologic, biologic changes, even DNA changes that happen with opening the awareness to this inner value. So enlightenment is a very practical thing for living life better, increasing our happiness and joy, but also for our physiology on a physiological level. And this is one of the important factors that in thinking about the relationship between mind and body, between matter and consciousness, between intelligence and physiology, which have been often considered as two realities, reality of the physical and reality of the mental or reality of consciousness. And throughout history and philosophers have been discussing how these two work together, how they can talk to each other, which one makes the other more important, which is primary? Is it matter and physiology that creates consciousness or it is panpsychism, which means it is consciousness actually that is primary. But so far, we haven't seen how one creates the other. If it is matter and physical, how does matter and physical create consciousness? This is still the hardest problem in science. If it is consciousness, it's another hard problem. How does consciousness appear as matter? And this is really the crux of the discussion in many ways, and which this book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, brings to resolution and to a logical understanding, actually to show how it is consciousness that appears as matter in a very systematic way. So going to the primary aspect of life leads to all that is needed in terms of change for the individual, physical health, mental health, behavior, as well as for society, in leading to a more peaceful life. And this also has been scientifically proven in terms of when groups of people practice these technologies of consciousness, the Marishi's technologies and transcendental meditation, there is decrease in crime, there is decrease in violence, there is improvement in life indicators on society level and prosperity increases. So that is one of the aspects that shows how consciousness actually permeates and is the primary foundation of all aspects in our life and the importance of enlightenment on a very practical level. Beautiful, beautiful. I, there's just so many deep points that you cover in this book. 
consciousness is primary, everything arises out of consciousness, all these incredible philosophical questions. We should let everyone know that you can get information on how to get Dr. Tony Nader's new book. I mean, it's really simple. You go to drtonynader.com. Boom, that's it. Get on his homepage. You're right there. All the instructions to order the book are there. If you look through the contents of the book, unbelievable what it covers. Every important question in life is there. I hate to turn away from these deeper questions, but I'm trying to bring it back to the simple practical level. Right now, people are stressed. People are really undergoing a lot of stress economically, psychologically, physiologically. I mean, you're a doctor. You are extremely good doctor. You're compassionate. But more than that, you are an individual who can help people out of this horrible situation of the stress they're in. And to me, the research on not just what happens during meditation, that we go to this very deep state of rest, but the research that shows how we can deal better with stress. That's so deep in the brain because you're not just affecting, oh, I'm meditating, I'm kind of going away from the world, I'm escaping. But no, you're coming out of meditation so you can perform better, so you can deal with stress better. And that has to involve some really deep changes in the neurophysiology and the neurochemistry of the brain on the molecular level of the brain. And I think I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about this ability to adapt to stress. Yes, indeed. In fact, if you take the definition of enlightenment further to understand what it really ultimately means, is that whatever you are gaining during this deep rest of meditation. So you, you say, okay, I isolate myself, I close my eyes, I transcend, I go beyond everything, I'm feeling great, my physiology improves, my stresses are gone, the brain is you know, functioning better. And what then happens when I go out in this world and this you know, field of activity and dynamism? So what really true enlightenment is, and in the definition of enlightenment from the ancient text, it's called liberation or moksha in Sanskrit. And what it means is you become established in the self in such a way that you never lose anymore that inner strength, inner stability, and inner feeling, even while you are in activity. It has a name that Maharishi has given, it's called cosmic consciousness. And what it means is every time you transcend, you go beyond things and you dive deep within yourself, you are changing the functioning of the nervous system and the physiology so that it has more flexibility and more ability to deal with situations in a way that is more holistic because you have access to this wide vision, as we said, you have the light of life within you and you have clarity in your thinking and greater ability to use all these processors that are in your nervous system. So it is not just a momentary influence that happens for a few minutes, morning and evening, because one can say, well, I can go running and I remove stresses and I can feel better like that, which is also good. You can do all kinds of activities, but exposing yourself directly to the transcendent, to that field of pure being, changes the physiology in such a way that even during activity, 
you are established in that self. That is true enlightenment, which means you never lose that reality of inner strength, inner clarity, creativity, and intelligence that you feel during this meditation. But when you come out, this stays with you. And then you have great ability to deal with stress. We have an example that we take, you know, that stress when it comes onto us, stress is undue tension or pressure on the system. So the system is actually physically stressed. Stress means put under strain, you know, from engineering and physics, a bar that is stressed or a metal that is stressed is a bar or a metal that has cracks within it and it can yield to more pressure and even break. So this leads to actual physical changes in our physiology when we are exposed to stress. Even if we forget it as we grow, we still have these things that are there in our physiology and we need to get rid of them. And that's what transcendental meditation does. So when it gets rid of the stresses, it gets rid of those cracks, the physiological cracks and abnormalities in the physiology, then you are able now to deal with much higher flexibility with new stress that might come. And the example we usually give is, you know, you can create a line in the stone, so you can carve a line in the stone, and it might take millennia before it is removed, before it goes. And assume that line is a stress or is a strain in your nervous system. When you are more flexible and more adaptable, as happens with transcendental meditation and diving and transcending, it is like creating a line, you can say, as you are growing, creating a line in the sand. And then a line in the sand, this appears much more easy because there is more flexibility. A line in the water as you grow more in enlightenment is a line that disappears as soon as you make it. And Marshi takes this beautiful example that when you are in the enlightened state, fully established in yourself, and there is this infinite adaptability, flexibility, and clarity in your mind, it is not that you will not meet situations and circumstances that require to be attended to, and they will leave an impression on you on the surface level, but that impression is like a line in the air. So it's as soon as it's made, in a sense, it disappears. And that example really is true in terms of the adaptability, physiological changes, and the ability to modify things and face things and be able to go beyond them in a state of enlightenment. So the state of enlightenment, of course, does have that effect in a very powerful way during activity, not only that you can be creative, you can be more awake, you can make decisions that are correct and move and grow and have more happiness, but also when things happen to you, you have that infinite flexibility, if you like, that allows you to move on without leaving a deep crack or an effect on your nervous system and your physiology. You were mentioning in that answer, you make correct decisions. And this is an incredibly interesting area. Let's assume you've rewired your nervous system from your daily practice of transcendental meditation. And now you're operating from this more expanded where the light is there, you're more flexible. You still have to make choices. Now, do you have free will 
or we know, you know, this concept of karma is there. Oh, is it fatalistic? I don't actually have a choice. So how do you, in this state of enlightenment, what happens in terms of making choice? How do I decide what to do today? How do I decide who to marry? How do I decide what job? How do I decide how to help the world? Yes, this is a big question, of course, as you know, and everybody has been exposed to throughout history and philosophy and time and discussion. If there are laws of nature, how could there be freedom? If there is cause and effect for everything. And so when you set the initial circumstances and then things interact with each other, whatever they are, normally if there is law and order and all of that, then you would expect that everything is deterministic, which means you have no choice and that's what happens. This understanding is a good conclusion in a sense if you have the wrong starting point or the wrong starting definition of what things are, the wrong worldview, then you come to conclusions that are wrong. And the wrong initial starting point is that physical reality is primary which means that you start from a physical reality and this physical reality has certain possibilities. Of course, there is in quantum mechanics the possibility of randomness also, but ultimately you can say that things build up and on the classical level, on the outer level, there are very rigid laws and therefore how can you fit freedom within that? The argument that is given in the book is that we start actually from consciousness, that everything starts from one unbounded ocean of consciousness and then show gradually how everything emerges. And freedom in this plays a very important role. It is a slightly elaborate description to get to that conclusion. How is it that freedom is? Where does it play? And I look forward to discussing this with everyone when they have looked at the logic and its steps. But in conclusion, we have freedom. We absolutely have freedom. And also freedom grows. Freedom grows with the ability to have more vision. So when you say enlightenment, and we have described enlightenment also as being broader perspective, when we said, if you can see only few choices, three or four choices, then that is your range of choice. That is your range of freedom because you don't see more than three choices. In enlightenment and in the growth of enlightenment, not necessarily full enlightenment, as one grows towards higher states of enlightenment and as one's vision becomes bigger, as one's processors in the brain one for seeing, one for hearing, one for touching, one for feeling, one for color, one for this, one for that, one for the past, one for memory, one for anticipation of the future, etc., etc., that constitute even on the surface level what our nervous system is. If they are all talking to each other, then you're broadening your awareness and therefore you're increasing the ability to see things and where you see more, you can choose more. There is no question about it. So freedom grows, consciousness grows as it develops, freedom grows, and we have more and more potential for choice, more and more ability to choose. And at the same time, 
we have more and more responsibility and therefore our actions have effect. We create an action, it has an effect. So while freedom grows, constraints on action can also grow due to our previous decisions. That is what we call then karma. Karma means action. And when you make an action, there is law and order. So it's not all kind of chaotic universe. But when you make a decision and you take it on that level of responsibility, then you have to get the results of your action. You plant an orange tree, and when the tree is fully blossomed and the oranges start to come and you have left it, you forgot about it, but now you come to your vacation house or somewhere where you have planted that tree and you feel like eating apples. You don't want to eat oranges. Well, you have to face the orange because you planted the orange tree and therefore you face the oranges. Now, if your consciousness is limited, you are crying a little bit. It's your decision and you have to bear with it. You have the oranges because you planted the orange. If your consciousness is wider, you might say, well, I can take the oranges to the market and find somebody who wants oranges and who has apples, and then I can exchange it. So you do have that obligation to face your decision, but you have now broader understanding. You understand that there is a market and you know that there are people who have apples. So you go there and you know that people like to you know, eat oranges. <laughs> so you change your orange for an apple and fine, you have the freedom. But if your consciousness is narrow, all you see is your tree and the oranges, you might start crying because you don't feel like eating oranges. Now you might have even a broader intelligence and a broader comprehension. And even from your simple desire, and this is possible when you have a higher and higher states of consciousness, you can come to the apple tree and you might have somebody walking there with a basket of apples and says, I have been looking at your orange tree and I have so many apples. Would you like to exchange and have some apples and I'll take some of your oranges? So this is the difference between narrow, wider, and even wider and widest level of consciousness. And this example is simplistic, but it is really true and really possible and really how it works. Of course, if you extend it to a large, more comprehensive vision of reality, which is brought to light when you understand what consciousness is, our own consciousness, the consciousness of others, and the consciousness of everything, actually, that is in reality. So this is how we can understand karma, which is there. There is a responsibility for your action. The result of karma, which is the effect that you produce, but also the growth in awareness, the widening of our comprehension, and the ability to make a change, to make a change in a way that is fulfilling in spite of karma. So there is increase in freedom with increased vision, increased awareness, but there is also increased constraints based on choices that we have made. And therefore making the right choices can actually help us so that our constraints are more evolutionary and help us to grow faster. And there are no more constraints but liberating aspects. So liberation, that where comes liberation and enlightenment. Beautiful, beautiful. I, 
I mean, there's so many questions here, I don't even know where to begin. But we do have some specific people who would like to ask you questions. Would that be okay right now to do that? Absolutely. Perfect. And, and you know, just remind everybody again, go to drtonynader.com to find the book. It's now available um, as an ebook, and we hope sometime it'll be available in many, many different languages all over the world. But all that information you can find on drtonynader.com. So let's thank all of the Florida teachers for organizing this beautiful conference with Dr. Tony Nader, particularly Dr. Regime de Toledo. So let's go to some areas of Florida. Let's let them start with these questions here. So first, uh, Hugo Gonzalez from Port St. Lucie. So if you unmute, Hugo, and you can ask your question, please. I am a retired veteran, combat wounded, legally blind. Dr. Nader, I have had the privilege of learning and practicing this technology constantly for one year and six months to be exact. Since then, I have experienced a palpable transformation in my life and in my environment. Today, I am happier, more creative. Therefore, regular, normal life situations and even the not so regular and normal ones no longer disturb me in the way they used to because today it is easier for me to visualize and comprehend a, bio, a viable solution to my problems. Among all my wounds sustained in the line of duty, I have to admit that the worst of all has been the severe symptoms of that post-traumatic stress disorder, a silent hunter that tormented my family and I for over 16 years. Today, I can proclaim loudly that not anymore. Even so, I have a question. Dr. Nader, what kind of karmic response and responsibility still waits on me for the actions that I was involved during my participation in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004? And if I still have the possibility to rectify or remedy the impact that my humanity may have had on my karma. Congratulations for your path and where you are. It's really wonderful and inspiring. So you are already an inspiration by hearing you and seeing what you have done and what you are wanting to do. And also even in your questions, I see a lot of enlightenment, very beautiful thoughts very deep search for truth, and this is really wonderful. Whatever we have done, it could be having an effect one way or the other, and you have done wonderfully. You have done great, and you have come now to a wonderful situation of understanding about reality. Now, it is really our responsibility, in a sense, to grow in consciousness and to know the priorities in life. Sometimes having one sense or the other that is not functioning, for example, vision or the other thing, allows us to develop other possibilities, other sensory expressions. And you seem to have gone very deep within. So it's the question of priorities in life. 
and you seem to have found really the true priority, which is the inner feeling of strength, wellness, and happiness. And that sometimes when something is missing, it actually can be a platform to develop another aspect. And rather than being too much concerned on one aspect, develop other aspects of life. So our humanity is our fullness of life. And the fullness of life is the fullness of our awareness, our understanding, our depths of knowledge of ourself and our life and where it's going. And so as you dive deeper into the self and continue on that path, you actually eliminate what we call stress in a big term as one term. But this term is not just stress, meaning fatigue and tiredness, but stress means all karma and all actions and all things that have caused a change in our physiology based on exposure to certain aspects of life in a certain way. There is no question that every experience we go through leaves something that is with us and kind of becomes a little bit part of our small self, our small us. But when we come to our true ourself, that true self is beyond these values. Our true self is infinite and bounded, one unbounded ocean of being. That is the true self. And the more we discover our true self, the more we feel the other aspects are not even ours. They are not ours as limited value. They have been maybe part of our memory, part of our past in one way or the other. But we can now scan them from a holistic perspective, knowing that they are part of a past that we have now bypassed that we have gone above, that we have changed. Change is the nature of life and change in the right direction makes us every day new, every day a different person. That is why, you know, holding grudge against people from so many years. Oh, you have said this 20 years ago and you have done that 20 years ago might be fair in some cases, but in many cases, if the person has grown, if the person has evolved, if the person has come to the conclusion and have gone above these values, then that is a different person today. And therefore, we see the person as they are now, as an evolved person who has gone through some experiences. And even we see ourselves as we are now, where we are growing now, because all the other things were steps and they were not our true end game reality. And therefore, this is where we transcend. We go beyond the limitations. We go beyond the small values and experience the fullness of reality as our true self. So your humanity, Hugo, is fabulous. It's great. I can feel it. I can see it. I can yeah. hear it. So live that wholeness, live that fullness, be it, and let go of all these other things. They are not your true self. They are memories of something which has happened to another Hugo. Today's Hugo is on the path of enlightenment, and congratulations for that. Beautiful. Thank you, Hugo. Now we go to Leroy and Carol McLeod from Miami, Florida. Yes, Dr. Nader, um, my name is Leroy McLeod and my question is, I'd like to know how long does it take for a person to become God consciousness? 
I'm very interested in knowing that. It can be just a, a few minutes. <laughs> it can be a lifetime. Depends on the path one takes. You know, of course, you can go from Miami, from Florida to San Francisco uh, walking. It will take a long time. You can go by bicycle, by motorcycle, by car. You can take a jet and you can teleport even there. And teleporting is instantaneous. So it's really the path we take and what options are available for us. So what do we do? We transcend, we live our life in a healthy way, we eat balanced diet, we live in tune with natural law, we avoid things that give us stress and strain, and we keep our mind and heart open. So we can see, you know, more from the heart than we can see from the eyes. And therefore, God consciousness, which is glorified cosmic consciousness, is the ability to see the fine values of reality in a very profound perspective. It is not that, of course, we become God, but it is that we experience the creation in the most fine level. So our awareness appreciates and is able to experience the creation, the experience, the beauty of it. Even during this pandemic, during this, we can see some values. And then if our attention is more on the solutions to the problems, our attention is on taking advantage of a situation like this, on helping others, on helping ourselves, on thinking on a global way, that develops the feeling and that develops the awareness. But the highest level of growth of cosmic consciousness into God consciousness is, one is to establish cosmic consciousness on a permanent basis, and that requires transcending, 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 and acting. Action is very important also. People who have you know, too much imposition on themselves to make a mood of God consciousness or to make a mood of cosmic consciousness or to try to be, you know, during activity, try to feel your breathing or try to feel your this or your that, they are confusing themselves and that can create anxiety and fears and sense of not being able to do it. What we have to be is simple, innocent, have the heart open, the mind open, transcend, and act. Act when you act, you act with engagement in activity. You don't act trying to divide the mind between the mood of being in God consciousness or being in cosmic consciousness and then the action. So we act in the right way, we make the right decisions and we transcend. Now it could be action for those who are interested in karma yoga, if you like, which is the yoga of action. It could be gyan yoga, which means the yoga of knowledge. So either you transcend and then act, or you transcend and then dwell on knowledge, like coming to such a meeting, thinking about life, thinking in a more profound things about existence, about reality, opening the intellect as well as the heart and the mind for a new perspective. So we transcend and then we put ourselves in life supporting beautiful things, have a balanced life, exercise well, get enough sun. And you know, you might want to do bhakti yoga, which is a yoga of devotion, where you love others, you love your friends, you love your family, you love your neighbors, you love the world, you do things for the world. 
you do things for improving world consciousness, for whatever your devotion is. All of these things are more meaningful and lead to God consciousness when we are well established in the self. And for that, we have that balance. A few minutes a day, we go back to the self. And then the whole day is there to do life supporting aspects, which are, as we say, you know, could be on action, doing good things, charity or helping or doing one's job in a nice way, in a holistic way, or reading and going to knowledge or part of this, part of that, or even every moment that we spend caring for others or loving or like that, that are all these positive things during action are very helpful also. So meditate and act, meditate and go to knowledge, meditate and go to other activities that I have life supporting. And then naturally, spontaneously, cosmic consciousness gets established and God consciousness blossoms. So as we keep our heart open, and even when we ask this question about God consciousness, is already an indication that we are on the path because we want that. The desire to go there comes only from the awakened intellect, the awakened consciousness that allows the individual to search for more. So it's a beautiful question that already indicates you are well on the path. Thank you, Leroy. Now let's go on to our next person. This is Michelle Joy Kramer from Naples, Florida. She's a very successful health coach. So let's hear from Michelle. Thank you, Dr. Wallace. And hello, Dr. Nader. So great to see you. So you've answered a little bit of already with my question, but I'm going to ask again. I've noticed as a health coach that my clients feel happier when they eat the right foods that are unique for their body type. How important is our diet when it comes to transcending? Everything that we expose ourselves to has an effect on us. In the book, I call it the bits of consciousness. The bit is the smallest entity, of course, in the computer field and all of that. And we live our lives through small bits, bit after bit, moments and moments of experience where ourself, whoever we are as an observer, in whatever state of consciousness we are, that observer exposes themselves to an object of observation. You see a flower, the flower leaves an impact on you. Maybe it's very tiny, it's very small. You see an accident, maybe it leaves some more influence on you. You hear some news or you are taken by the news about you know, something that's happening. If it's a good news or a bad news, whatever. If it's important, it leaves an impact on you. So you get transformed by these bits of consciousness, bits of consciousness, moments of awareness. But these bits of consciousness are not only on the level of direct experience. They are also on the level of what we expose our body to, because our body is also an observer. It's also a conscious entity. And it exposes itself to an environment. If it's a harsh environment, it gets some harsh effect. If it's fulfilling, if it is nourishing, like good values that nourish and balance the body, that is why balanced diet is important, then it is influenced by that. And these are like bits of consciousness. They are all like bits of awareness, moments of existence. So everything we take in our body has an influence. And it has an influence as a buildup of our overall patterns of consciousness 
we are a pattern of consciousness. And that pattern of consciousness is influenced by the bits of consciousness that we go through in our life, one bit after another. And the way I describe it in the book is that the bits ultimately lead to a mode of functioning, which means you expose yourself to some situation it's a bit of consciousness. One moment of an observer through a process of observation comes into contact with an object of observation. These are the three components of the bit of consciousness. We can say it's a triple, which means three values, not something complicated. In mathematics, they use that term triple. But triple means an observer and a process and an object. So we expose ourselves to that bit of consciousness, that moment of experience. What it does, it, it changes our mode of experience. You know, when you have a bit of consciousness, when you have, let's say you go through an accident, there is an accident, it's a moment of experience. But after that moment of experience, you're no more the same. So you're acting with a new mode, it's a new mode. And one bit after the other, they add the modes, the different modes of experience. And these modes of experience, when they are many, they still are, some are there, some are eliminated. They create a complex pattern, a complex structure of the basis of who we are and what we experience. Food is like this. So you eat this, you eat that, you eat this. The effect might be very tiny, almost imperceptible and very negligible, but it can also be quite big if you eat something that is damaging to your nervous system. It can be creating an effect that is damaging, a stress that really needs a long time to be cleaned. But it can be, of course, always cleaned and removed. This is true also, you know, as a health coach for yoga, for everything. You know, if we have a posture of yoga, posture is a way of putting the body in a way that is awakening the different patterns of consciousness that are there in a specific way. And that leads to reorganizing. So that is, you know, yoga asanas and exercises of yoga. That's how they create their effect. All of these things have important effect. Of course, the most important bit of consciousness that one can have and that has the most profound effect is to expose oneself to pure consciousness because that is the most orderly, the most comprehensive, the most organizing power is there. And therefore, that is why when we transcend, we expose ourselves to some bit of consciousness that has its own mode and that ultimately helps to restructure our pattern of consciousness, our networks of consciousness within ourselves to be in the right direction. So everything has an influence, but not to make a big deal out of it. Don't worry, oh my God, this happened, this happened. And then, so we don't live our life in fear and anxiety. If something happens, we cannot do it. Just overtake it and clean it up and move on. So let's be relaxed, take it easy, trust life. And from our side, heart and mind be open to try to do the best. Sometimes we'll do mistakes, it's fine. Life is a process of growth and evolution. We don't hold back, we just look to the nice things, to the beautiful things. We look to improve, we look to bypass the mistakes and the problems that we have had. In the same way with diet, one day you had a big feast and you ate all kinds of stuff. It's not ideal, it's okay, now you'll do the right thing and move on and move on. So life is a field of greater and greater evolution and happiness. Thank you so much. Did you have another question or was that okay? 
just how does alcohol affect our meditations? I get asked that a lot. Alcohol has been scientifically shown not to be helpful. So, you know, we can answer this way because we know that alcohol is not ideal for heart disease, for this and that. And that means there is a part of us that is not happy with it. And even the nervous system is a little bit dulled by that. Now, some people use alcohol because if they have a lot of stress, it creates a little bit of time of enjoying and, and kind of forgetting that. So it's not that it's the end of the world, but of course, if you want to make the best choices, I would not suggest to, you know, to make alcohol a means of enlightenment, which it is not. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Thank you, Dr. Wallace. Thank you, Dr. Nader. Thank you. So next on our list, formerly from Vero Beach, but now in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, is Veronica Morales. Please ask your question. Thank you so much, Dr. Wallace. Good afternoon, Dr. Nader. Thank you so much for that brilliant presentation. I cannot wait to read your book. So I'm from Bolivia, a little bit further down south in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I am right now. And I have two school-age girls. And I'm also a Maharishi Ayurveda consultant. So honestly, I consider myself a bit insecure about speaking in front of others. Now I find myself in a position where I need to speak more publicly. And I want to be able to speak more powerfully and more efficiently and uh, my question to you is, how can the development of higher states of consciousness influence our speech? By being established more and more in the self, you know, we all, those who speak, have had this. You know, I, I cannot claim that I was, you know, when I started speaking, I was not nervous. I was, you know, conscious of the situation, what people will say, and how do I look, and how do I feel, and... Will I stutter? Will I have a good logic? What impression does it give? Because when we speak, we almost kind of expose ourselves to some level of our thinking. We expose our mind to the public. <laughs> because before we could just make believe and we look great and all of that. And now suddenly our mind and our intellect and our role in life and our abilities is exposed to scrutiny. Therefore, there is that nervousness. So it is completely natural. And if you look at the best actors, the greatest speakers, even heads of state and all of that, they all have that little track before the thing. And they all feel, even though they come and they feel very confident and like this, but there is always something that happens. And based on experience, it gets better because you find it's not the end of the world after all. So what you want to do is meditate. Don't go speaking when you are tired or you are you know, afraid or something like that. Of course, if you have to, then you just do it. Don't worry about it. The main thing is not to be too concerned from failing. That's very important. When you want to speak, don't worry if you fail. It doesn't matter. Maybe you fail, you do some things like that, but at least you have the courage to do it and that will be appreciated and you can always correct yourself. So that is a very important thing. And the important thing also is to establish in the self. That's what enlightenment really means. Because then you think not of what the others are going to think, how they are going to see it, what will happen. Think of what do I want to tell these people? 
you know? It's like speaking to those because you care for them, you care to say something, you care to share something and think of the content and plan it before, you know, you can make notes of the main points that you want to say and then plan it. And if you plan it from that level of inner settledness and the sense of I am here to help and I'm here to share, I'm not here to, you know, to impress or anything, but to actually to help and guide and, you know, think of the others only in the sense of you want them to get the message, you want them to be better, not you want them, you know, how to judge or not judge or look at this and that. That's their problem. People will always judge from their own perspective and you speak from your own dignity, from your own perspective. Be bold and I'm sure you will do great because you seem to be speaking really simply and nicely and there should be no problem. So we do it like this. And again, that inner stability that comes from being is what is important. Often people judge more on the feeling that your speech gives. They feel something. You communicate your inner feeling sometimes more than just the word can do. Of course, we want to speak correctly. We don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to stutter. But this can happen. But if your feeling that you give is genuine and candid and you are true to yourself, not just telling them things to please them or anything, but true to yourself and established in yourself, these are some kind of uh, general advice I can give. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. I've been asked to remind everyone that the book is in both English and Spanish. It's also very easily found when you go to drtonynader.com. So, Veronica, do you have another question or should we go on to the next? What would you like? Can you please give some practical advice to raise the level of uh, consciousness in Latin America specifically? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. Uh, Practice transcendental meditation regularly and in group when possible. Introduce it to schools, to the different organizations, because the group practice is very, very powerful. All is about consciousness, all is about really raising awareness. And thus doesn't happen just through information. Information is needed, knowledge is needed, so people know where to go, what to do, etc., of course. But the actual effect comes from transcending and from experiencing this value. And, you know, by spreading this knowledge through different means, we have, you know, scientific books. Um, Dr. Keith Wallace wrote a wonderful book with with others about brain coherence and its effects. Uh, We have scientific research. Uh, We have every, you know, means. So spread the knowledge and attract people to transcend and experience the self individually and collectively in different schools, in different systems. Be in touch with uh, Dr. Luis Alvarez, who is our great leader uh, for Latin America and also in the whole world, uh, a bright shining star, uh, who is connected there with all the centers and all the leaders there locally. They have been absolutely wonderful and some wonderful things have happened. You know, since the program has come to a certain level, Latin America has become growing, progressing, peaceful, no more, you know, big things happening. Of course, there are still here and there, maybe a fire here, a little flood there or a little something there that happens. But 
as world consciousness and particularly the collective consciousness in Latin America through all these projects that have been happening, for example, with Father Mejia in Mexico and here and there and all really organized so well by Dr. Alvarez, you know, you can join in these, inspire those and think of knowledge, spread the knowledge. You know, I don't want to say just, you know, get them to read my book. <laughs> it will look like a sales pitch, but, uh, you know, I believe that it has knowledge to, to convince them. Uh, get to read Dr. Wallace's books and all the movement, transcendental meditation research and findings, scientific discoveries, scientific findings, hard science that have been written by all scientists from all over the world. That will help convince the people that ultimately consciousness is something real, is something practical, is something effective, and can really create a difference in national life and the life of an entire continent and the whole world, as a matter of fact. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nader. Congratulations on your new Thank book. You. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm going to read one comment just from the chat here. It's from Dr. Charlotte Beck in Denmark. She says, what a fantastic and wonderful exposition of the Vedic knowledge, a king philosopher on the supreme level. <laughs> I think that rarely summarizes it. Now we have one last panelist, as we are calling our lovely Florida people who are asking questions, Beverly Burt from Santa Rosa Beach. Hi. Um, it's an honor to be here today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Dr. Nader, you've answered my first question a, a little bit already. As a yoga teacher, do you have any advice for the yoga community on how the physical practice of yoga contributes to the development of higher states of consciousness, if it does? But I might want to revise that question just a little bit and ask, how to keep our practice pure, because you did mention earlier, I think when you answered the question about food and diet, that maybe moving the body and stretching and the postures do help to release stress. And I think as we lessen our stress, that we have a capability of reaching higher states of consciousness a little bit easy, but how do we keep the practice pure? You know, yoga, of course, as a teacher and exponent, yoga is many yogas. Of course, we have bhakti, karma, yoga, and ashtanga yoga, and different aspects. Nowadays in the world, yoga is one of the aspects of the Patanjali Yoga Sutras in ashtanga yoga, which is the yoga asana. You know, they have these eight limbs of yoga, yam, niyam, asanas, pranayam, pratyahar, dharana, dhyan, samadhi. And these eight limbs, Maharishi has said, when you move one limb, all the other limbs move at the same time. And so if you practice pranayama, for example, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just for the breathing. It helps to have samadhi, to transcend. It helps to have more focus, more ability to focus. If you do exercises that are very specific or, you know, I wouldn't like to call them actually exercises. Uh, they are postures, you know, yoga is asanas. Asanas means a seat, a seat, a posture, the way to sit. And normally it was a seat for meditation. So the postures, when they are done one after the other as an exercise, they can still be helpful. 
But if the student doesn't have this moment of attention, as we describe this bit of consciousness, because we live through bits of consciousness, and it is consciousness that is the underlying power, the underlying nourishing value. So when you teach your students to do the postures, make sure they take a moment of appreciating the posture, even in silence, just which means feel the body, not just feel the body everywhere, but feel the posture, just get into it, realize what you're doing, not just doing it like a machine like this. So take that time of this moment of consciousness, because these postures also have an effect on restructuring the physiology. You know, we say removing stress, it's a general term, but what it does really is putting the physiology back in the best pattern possible. I see physiology as a pattern of consciousness. And when you read the book, you will see how much <laughs> I keep coming to that. A pattern of awareness. It's a pattern of consciousness. And therefore, when we put that pattern in a certain format, in a certain way, it just works in a certain way. It awakens certain aspects that were maybe dormant. And so if there is a stress somewhere, when you awaken the physiology from that level, it kind of releases that stress. And this is not something esoteric or anything, although esoteric can be nice, but you know, even when you stretch before you do your exercise, stretching is awakening the muscle. And physiologically, we know that when you put your attention somewhere, you draw the physiology to that place. There is a research that has been done on athletes, for example, when they are ready to run. You know, when you run, you need your blood flow to go to the muscles. It's not the time to digest the food. So when you eat, it's the time to digest the food. So when you eat, you, you see that the blood flow goes to the digestive system. You don't have to do it for yourself. It's done automatically. When you're ready to run, just the intention to run makes the blood flow go from the digestive and inner organs, to some extent, of course, to the muscles. And that is how consciousness through the brain, of course, through the nervous system, moves the circulation to a different part of the body and the intention, even the intention, you didn't run yet, just the intention to run changes the physiology in such a way that you're prepared to run. Therefore, it's a new mode of functioning, a new way of acting. So if you can modify these different modes of acting through specific postures of yoga with the consciousness there, the attention is there, it will help, you know, more than just stretching. It will help to put the body in a certain way. And mind and body are intimately connected. They are really an extension one of the other. They're not two different things. You know, they are one and the other. They are all that patterns of consciousness, patterns of awareness. And this can sound a little bit abstract, but when you look at it carefully through the book, you will find why it really makes sense. And therefore, you are kind of helping this mode of functioning of the physiology, that other mode of functioning of the physiology. In the book, I do have like two small explanations, one about mindfulness and the other about yoga that brings to light these points. They are part of, you know, the whole thing because the book talks about from the impersonal absolute, the personal absolute, to uh, the unmanifest and the manifest, to how creation comes and how evolution and 
then artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, the pandemic, mindfulness, yoga. <laughs> so the topics, you know, happiness and pleasure and evil and good and all of that, uh, you know, they're discussed with the context of one holistic understanding and one simple paradigm that puts all of these things together in a, in a coherent whole. Hopefully, uh, you will tell me it's coherent when you read it. <laughs> I think we all are so blessed by having you really expound this amazing knowledge. You are the one human being in the world who really represents all of this Vedic knowledge, this great tradition Marshi came from. And you so beautifully combine it with such a high level of science and practicality and even philosophy. These amazing questions like which comes first, consciousness or the brain? That's such an important question in science right now. And the fact that you have all these answers in the book are wonderful. And I think for all of us, you know, who really appreciate what you've done for the world and the depth of knowledge that you bring out to us all the time, we just want to give our great, great thanks to you because you are doing a lot of webinars right now. I think you must be doing one every day and all to help people understand this book. So it's very simple to order this book, very inexpensive for this encyclopedia of knowledge, just a simple click on any of these sites like Amazon or any of the other sites. And you have this beautiful book right now, an ebook in terms of English and a few clicks from everyone. It's already a bestseller on Amazon. It's number one in neuroscience, number one in philosophy. It's, it's already made a huge wave throughout the world. But we all want to help you make this wave even bigger because we know that by getting this book, making it popular, letting everyone know about it, that we're really helping the world. We're genuinely spreading Marshi's knowledge. We're genuinely helping everyone in this extremely difficult time. And we need that light to brighten up our lives. We need that knowledge to help us get through this very difficult time. So Thank you so much for bringing out this incredible encyclopedia. So many questions answered, so deep, beautiful exposition of Vedic science and modern science. And from all the teachers in Florida, from all the teachers in the United States, from all the teachers in the world, from all those who are just interested in learning about enlightenment and how to better our lives, from our deep within our hearts, we thank you for this great wisdom you brought out to the world. Thanks to you, Dr. Keith Wallace, a pioneer and a historical figure in the field of consciousness, worked with Marishi so long, and an enlightened leader in your own right. Thank you to everyone who has participated today and to all those who will read the book and let me know how I can answer questions. We look forward to having more meetings and create courses on this and discuss this. I will be here. It will not stop. It is just the beginning. Thank you for all those teachers who have participated to create a different collective consciousness throughout time that allows this knowledge to blossom with the guidance of our teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and the tradition of Vedic knowledge, Vedic masters, and all those who participate in promoting this knowledge, all the leaders of our transcendental meditation programs around the world. 
And thank you, especially at this time, to the Latin American Penguin and Random House who have taken this book and have put it forward to Juan and Mariano and Deborah, Dr. Alvarez, and wholehearted appreciation to all those who read it and get their friends to read it. I look forward to being with you again and again and to discuss this. Uh, we have a wonderful team. Adrian has been my public relations leader and director and the leadership in, in America and in the North and South America have been absolutely great. And now also in Europe and in the East and the Far East. It's been a joy, you know, it's been um, a path of joy and fullness, and I hope you'll enjoy it and we'll make it something enlightening and joyful for everyone. Thank you again for hosting me and look forward to being with you on many, many occasions. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.